Hello, podcast listeners. It's Ash Goodwin here, the founder and director of Ardor Talent. We are a product data design, marketing and technology recruitment business based in London and operational on a global scale. And I'm delighted to bring you the product series of the Ash Goodwin podcast. In this product series, I will be interviewing a series of leaders in the product and technology space where we will bring you insights and valuable nuggets of product information with the simple aim of this series, which is to bring value to you. In episode one, I was delighted to have James Lung, the head of product at Capernio, talk about product strategy. Welcome to the product series of the Ash Goodwin podcast. I'm delighted to have the head of product from Capernio here, James Lung. Welcome, James, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks for having me. No, it's my, my, my pleasure. Um, I think we first spoke about two years ago, didn't we, James, when you were at Hostmaker? Oh, have we? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we did. Literally two years ago, I, I was recruiting for a, a travel management company and connected with you about a job. And that's the reason, one of the reasons why I've kept in touch with you over the last last couple of years is that conversation we had then. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, this Hostmaker was, uh, it still is a very hot company. And so, and it, <laughs> In terms of hospitality, et cetera. Um, so I would not be surprised that you wrong me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just uh, what, what kind of stuck out there was kind of your, your positivity, positive attitude and the journey you've been on since Hostmaker to, to where you are now. So just tell us a bit about yourself, James. So, um, ever, I mean, I've been a PM most of my uh, career in London. So I, I'm a native New Yorker, but I came over here an exchange student and then my very first job actually was in tech support, and then I worked my way up to product management, and then I was a product manager for a big corporate company. And I found out that it's much more challenging. There's more opportunities in startups. So I've been working my way to smaller and smaller startups. And la- the last one, send me a sample, it was, I was employee number four or five at that time. And, uh, and then now I am working in a startup, but it's been recently acquired by a corporate. And it's 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 a it's a way to just I'm in a situation where I feel like I need to be in a safe spot because the last two starts have been quite shaky, and yeah, uh, yeah with with Brexit and with uncertainty, <laughs> in the cover uh, under the wings of a corporate as well as keeping the the flexibility and the growth of a startup at the same time. So it's get the best of both worlds, and that's where I am now. Absolutely. I mean, some, some exciting startups you worked for now, uh, worked for hit, kind of hit historically. Um, would you say just for, for, I guess, for the products people kind of listening to, to this, working through startups, is it a, a, a quick way to progress in your career or do you kind of learn more kind of from, from a product perspective in, in the startup than maybe a big organization? Because kind of, you can sometimes get involved in more, can't you, from a startup perspective? It, would you suggest that's a pretty good way to get kind of quick career growth yes. uh, into the market? Hundred percent, and that's that's the reason why I chose it. I read an article uh, from I, I forgot through LinkedIn. It was a it was about someone who went from corporate to startup and having those opportunities. What I mean by opportunities, these challenges, the problems that they have to face as a startup, because there's less people, you're gonna have to deal with more. And when you deal with more, um, you also every, everything first is more, everything is new, so things are fast because you're building it from scratch. Um, compared to something that's already old, you're actually dealing with two products, the legacy product and then what you're building new, for example. And um, 
And also there's, there's a lot of startups is about fast growth. And so whatever you put in the, the, the rest of your team is behind you and working for that fast growth. So you get results pretty quickly. Um, in yeah, in, in something that compared to a corporate where you're just working in a, in a section, um, where it's probably already quite saturated. This is extreme example where growth is more like maintenance. It's a, it's a cash cow. For example, um, you won't see those results that you would want to see in a in a startups so those people like to see growth and then you get promoted through growth so I, i'm generalizing of course and so this is how i i went through that venture and this is pretty much how i yeah went from i, I pretty much got promoted in each company every year because of that yeah I mean, what, what effectively what you've done is worked really hard and worked really smart to kind of choose your career path, which is really clever um, in, in, in a lot of respects. So I think a lot of people listening to this can probably learn a great deal from what kind of how you've got to head a product now in, uh, I'm, I'm product director in, in your last role, weren't you as well? So kind of like the leadership level um, in, not, 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 not kind of within like a year, but in a really, really quick period, I think it's really, really impressive. So one, what, obviously what we're going to talk about in this podcast now is product strategy, um, which is obviously what we've discussed on on the, the call before. And it's probably really important to you now in your head of product role to make sure you kind of get that strategy right. So James, for the people listening, um, for I guess the non-product related people, what is product strategy? So it's, in within, it's not really a single statement that you could have for your product, but it's basically finding out and why, what you're building and how you're going to deliver. So it encompasses those type of elements in there. So within, let's say, for example, for everyone's uh, sake, let's say, for example, Netflix, um, the product strategy for this quarter is to focus on uh the the travel app for example a lot of there's a lot of commuters watching netflix let's focus on that uh versus let's focus on say the tv feature so that's a totally different strategy and then um that would lead to you know of course this is following uh, the different path of getting to finding out how to meet the objective which is the product vision so it's it's the plan to get to the product vision or the vision of the company yeah absolutely i think that products or non-products every company needs a good strategy and a good vision in place to reach growth yeah and i'm just going to interject a bit that there's also business strategy as well which is slightly different and it usually goes before product strategy and what i mean by business strategy you make to make it easy or to think about it is that there's a company that has an offline business that's not totally run by tech. Um, say what I was working in Third Bridge and uh, there it's it's mainly offline service, but they're building a tech in the background. There's a there's a tech backbone, but their product strategy. Well, their business strategy is let's open our markets to Bloomberg. And so that is already something that they decided. And then so hence our product strategy has to follow suit. Let's work within Bloomberg, for example. Yeah, yeah, makes all makes absolute sense. I think that just every successful company has generally always had a really good strategy, business product, and a great vision behind it to, mm-hmm. to, to, kind, of, to kind of reach their, their product goals. Great stuff. So so kick us off. So obviously that, that's product strategy, business strategy. So 
where, where do you gather the information to form your strategy? How does it all kind of form? How, how, how do you make that happen? Okay, so big picture, there's elements to your company, as in what is your company's vision? Um, what is your current situation, as in what what products do you have? Uh, how many developers do you have? So this is, I'm describing the environment that you have. These are your boundaries, the vision, what you have within your resources, and then also what is what is happening in the market now. So that that is within the boundaries. And then to actually tease out, to get information for a product strategy, you have to go back to, well, it's not you have to, it's just because I'm a user-centric uh, product person. Um, and the product strategy contains the user, uh, I go to the user themselves uh, directly and find out what exactly within the context of, say, this product is the thing that they're trying to solve. Why did they use this product? And they'll give you their list of requirements. And it could be a full list of problems that they have or solutions that they have. And the best way to do this is to ask them to order it. So what is the one that affects you most, for example. It's just card sorting, right? Yeah. And I'm quoting from Teresa Torres, who's actually a very good person to um, go to when it comes to product strategy, or this is what I use when it comes to user user discovery, user research-based strategy, um, is that she groups those problems together into bigger problems and higher-level problems um, so that you can now focus on the big boulders or the what is the, the big gut problem governing this person to think this is a much bigger problem that I have. And the idea is when you deal with the bigger problem, you get higher engagement or you get higher revenue based on that, and then you aim for that. So back to the Netflix example again, let's say they give you a bunch of problems and they would say one is, I like to watch Netflix on my phone and they list a few features related to their phone. And then they also say another problem is I, I can't find anything to watch on Netflix. And that's another problem. And then rather than comparing the solution to those two, like, should we find more content or should we have more features on the phone? We have to think about the bigger problem. Is yeah. travel with Netflix a bigger problem than, say, content in general? And that is that is when, when, it, when it's posed, it's easier to answer. And that's how you pick and choose your strategy. Fantastic. Okay, sounds sounds really interesting. I think the the travel app just going completely off topic. The travel app with with Netflix is interesting. You have to download everything, don't you, before you can actually kind of watch it. Is 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 that correct? So, uh, I pers I personally haven't uh, watched Netflix on on the travel uh, <laughs> at all. It's it's just an example that I just hypothetically made up. Actually, it's it's yeah. I'm hoping that people can relate to it. Hence, I threw that example. Yeah. So if, if what you're mentioning is if it's like onboarding, if it's an issue trying to get it to work. Um, yeah. If that's a big problem and you find that most of your users are watching it on commute rather than on television, obviously, aim for that. Um, that's you absolutely. You say, so, what, so what I was referring to then is I see loads of people on the underground, on, on the tube, watching kind of Netflix on the phone when they downloaded it all. I think it's just making sure you're prepared to download it is, is, is the harder thing. So from an actual consumer perspective, for me, I think they can make the process better or, or, or easier. I think I think that's just something which from a consumer perspective, I think would would something they probably need to actually improve. And Netflix is great. I think it's yeah. a great price. It's a great price. I use it daily. But that's just um my, my opinion, whenever I've traveled with it, it's always just a bit cumbersome. 
Yeah, so that's that's actually great, great qualitative feedback. Like this is just a mini user session. Like you're happy with the content, um, but you have issues with traveling. And so that you could tease out, uh, that could be a red flag. And then you would run experiments, like find out within your database how many people actually tried to download, for example, versus how many people watch it on television. And then those numbers would give you like an idea, like which would bring in more engaged users through the travel or through the television. Great. So, so now we've got that information. What would we do with that information? Where would you take it and how would that work in with the strategy moving forward? Mm, so now that you have qualitative idea, let's just assume that you have nailed the problem. Let's say we've selected travel as, as the bigger problem to solve. Um, the idea is that then you focus all your efforts on that because you have limited resources, especially during a startup. Let's say you only have three devs. You don't want to spread yourself too thinly trying to build content for TV as well as, you know, do the travel app. So the whole idea is that we just focus on one thing. Um, it's the path of great achievement, let's just say. Yeah. Um, and then you would run experiments. Uh, experiments by the reason why I say experiments is, is that it's quick. You don't want to start building it now. Uh, what you want to do is start doing wireframes, prototypes, ways to figure out how to download, let's say for your problem, download the app faster um, or make make performance or there's some sort of technical performance to improve to think about um, and then propose it then and see if that would improve uh, the user uh, feedback. Uh, this is, of course, through a small population, for example, you could try to test it with a couple of users and then you could run it through 10 and then just stagger the, the release and then you'll find out whether it worked doing this. Um, so, yeah, continue, continue experimenting and then eventually you produce a product and then see and then uh, see the next iteration if it actually does bring in the numbers. If not, you have to reevaluate the big problems again. Um, which is a good thing. So then you wouldn't have to start reevaluating all the many solutions that you have at the very bottom of the tree. Um, you would look at the big boulders that you want to look at. Perfect. Fantastic. Thank, thanks for that, James. Um, I, I guess going back to, to strategy again, um, how would you work in a product strategy with the overall vision? I think we mentioned kind of the business strategy and, and the vision overall, but how would you actually work that in to make sure that you actually are aligned to, to reach the vision of, of, of whatever the business is? Oh, so um, product vision is what your product will be in the future, or what do you, ex what do you hope the product to be? It could be like, the I want it to be the number one fitness app, for example, or I want this app to do X, Y, Z. Um, those are your boundaries that you work towards. And um, within that, that is, you already know that that's, that's the problem space that you're trying to solve as well. So how do you keep yourself in check on whether your strategy is fitting it? One is to uh, check with your colleagues. Uh, this is within the team. At, at a minimum, check with your CEO. Always work with your CEO to ensure that they are aligned with it. Um, when you're a head of product, usually um, the vision comes from the CEO or C-level people, or sometimes you would come up with it yourself, but you still have to check with the CEO. Otherwise, they would be upset or feel left out, right? Um, when you say you're a senior product manager, then that vision uh, would come from your head of product.
Okay, so it's like kind of a bit like the chain of command as to kind of That's in right. some respects where it comes from. Always check with them and uh, you could all, of course, pose this to your user and then keep those boundaries within uh, so the users can understand also what the technical boundaries are as well. So they won't think of something that's way too far out. Perfect. Okay. Just out of curiosity, have you ever been in a situation where the CEO or the person you're reporting, the, the, I guess the strategy isn't aligned with the vision? Mm. So have you, ever, have you ever experienced that? And, and what, would you, what do you do in that situation? When the strategy doesn't align with the vision. So what, you, what it's potentially saying is that um, the plan that, that is proposed by you is not agreed by the CEO. And what happens is then you would then have to rely on proving it um, and proving it to say, the investors, the, the, one of the reasons why the CEO might not agree is because his data set is different or his investors might say, this is the better idea, right? Yeah. Hence you, and that's that's the only other person that's higher up than the, than the CEO is the investor. And so uh, what you have to do is prove uh, through the experimentation, whether your plan will work or their plan will work. Um, so you have to take both on board, unfortunately and test it out and do it as fast as possible, as quick as possible. Um, yeah, because time is money and you don't want to yeah, lose your resources that way. Yeah, I, I think that's a great piece of advice, James. I mean, I speak to product people every single day and I think that's something which has come up more recently with people I've been working with, with a few more startups personally, I've been working with them. And it's just something which has come up a little bit that it's just stuff isn't aligned, then it becomes, creates a little bit of chaos that people aren't kind of all pulling in the same direction to actually work towards the vision and make sure the strategy kind of works to reach that overall overall goal and um i had a senior product manager me ask, ask me what, what what do you do so the fact you've answered that is is, is fantastic and i'll be honest with you, i said to him was like i'm probably not the right person to answer that question because uh, um although i've experienced something similar it's it's different in recruitment than in in product per se so you've added a lot of value there james so thank you for that um so let me add a little bit more to that um yeah. in, in case you're in a situation where they're like complete no uh you have to do it um the the situation is uh is quite difficult because if you disagree with your ceo he might think you're a product manager that he can't work with and he might end up firing you, especially in a startup that happens. Yeah. Um, and so you just have to do it and, but do it quickly and to see if there's any results. So do it like do a, the MVP or like a quarter of it and then see what the numbers are and then just show it to them. And then of course, at the same time on the side, run your little experiment as well. Uh, since experiments are small, then you could say, hey, look, this is what my experiment suggested. And then they have an A and B test to consider. Perfect. It makes sense as well. I think most well, most CEOs should be fairly open. If a product can be become more valuable, you can get more customers or make more money, then generally, if, if, if what you're saying is right and the data is right, then they've got to kind of sometimes you can influence decisions and I think it adds a lot of value to yourself as a product manager to actually be able to influence those decisions as well and kind of make make that happen um great stuff okay so I, I guess leading on from that um wh why is it important then to define your product goals okay 
As in personal goals or is it the team's goals or the company's goals? I guess you now as head of product, um, both. So from the team perspective and from your from your personal perspective. All right. So the the, the idea of having it defined out is assume that we make this public so that everyone knows what you're doing. Uh, the sales, the marketing understands where it's going so that they could be prepared um, when they're out in the front line talking to customers that that's what's coming up next. Um, I, that is... That is also one thing. Another thing is also benchmarking yourself, uh, whether you are performing as you hope to be and et cetera, and see how your team, the team will also benchmark themselves and understand that this, this goal is agreed by the team. It's, it's discussed with, by the team. Otherwise, they don't feel connected to it and they probably won't be engaged with it. So that's that's from experience. Um, when you come up with the protocol, ensure that you incorporate everyone from the bottom up, including users as well, if you can. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Um, I, I guess just just on that, I think that I did I did have another question a bit down the line, but I think this links in quite nicely. So you've kind of made everyone aware. Um, when you actually define your strategy, is that something that you do? Is it something that the team does? Is it something that kind of everyone has an, has, has an input into? Um, so how, how do you actually define it and who's involved in, in that process? Um, it depends on your environment. If you're in a small company, let's say four people, everyone's going to get involved. Uh, yeah. It's, they feel like it's their own. And um, if you're in a corporate there's or there, there's not necessarily corporates just when there's a lot of people they have other responsibilities so they're they're less likely to want to contribute as much but still you want to voice it out to them um to let them know what's happening um so keep yeah if if you have some, like a major stakeholder just ensure that they are part of it as well um keep it uh, what i do is i share a tr my trello board of what are things to come. And I try to keep the language as simple as possible so everyone can understand. And Trello boards don't necessarily have dates like what people, are, business people are used to Gantt charts and it's the business people who have the money or the investors that they want to see Gantt charts. <laughs> so um, have a simple spreadsheet of let's just have a date against the feature and it's an estimated date and then they would know what to expect basically. Perfect, okay. Um uh, yeah, because I imagine obviously with the sales team, they're out with the customers, sort of customer facing roles often. They must get a lot of feedback. Um, when when they get feedback and they present it to you and you make sort of product enhancements or you bespoke a product or kind of bolt in a product to, to what, what's important to, to, to that business, do, does that ever alter the strategy? With If you get consistent feedback, do you then alter your strategy and adapt it? Or do you kind of just keep moving forward with kind of what you've we've pre-agreed it? I think that it seems like a really simple question that you probably should just adapt and, and push forward, but not every company does that. That's a, that's a very interesting question. Because um, every you could do one thing and it could lead to disaster. Let's say you take um, a solution from directly from sales and like, this is what all the customers are saying. Um, you end up, you might end up with the Frankenstein product. It, it's actually made up of various clients. Uh, and the salespeople are, are obviously, they're very motivated to get their commission. So they want to make sure that they close that deal with that specific customer, right? Yeah. 
So Frankenstein products is what you want to avoid completely. And you see that in a lot of B2Bs and in actually in old B2B products. And that's because that's just how the sales model is. Um, I've noticed that uh, what I've experienced in, in, in the past, the companies have decided to put the product people in part of the sales process. Yeah. Uh, the product people in the pre-sales process. And so they are in the front line too, so that they could gauge what is the essentials and what's not. Um, you want to have a core set of products that would make everyone happy, but not have uh, products, I mean, features that doesn't make sense for everybody. So previously I worked in a commodities trading company. We were just going into agriculture, a totally different field. And suddenly our oil customers are asking like, why do you have like the, the drop down for grains and things like that and sugar? And they totally, it's, it's in their face. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to them. And so it's, 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 that's the start of becoming a Frankenstein. Um, so, and then after we got acquired that, that was the thing that CEO did, like put the product people uh, in the front line so that they know what is the important thing. And the, the thing is his, his model was we become the experts of the product because we got to talk to all these clients. And one of your clients could be, could be making the gold standard. Like let's say the biggest paying client could be the gold standard of methodology of let's say trading sugar. Um, and then people would align towards that and you would be building a, a product that is, would be seen as the gold standard used by the biggest client and then everyone will fall in place. So you don't end up with Frankenstein. And just to add more, just to add more why we don't do Frankenstein, you can imagine the support process that you got to do. You got to imagine the, the manuals that they write. It's just all over the place and UX overall will suffer as well. Yeah, it's, it's really insightful because obviously I spoke to somebody a couple of weeks ago now and he mentioned that they're, they've got multiple products, but one of their products is used predominantly by one really big customer. So sort of blue chip business. And they were looking at maybe bespoken it's one to that business and kind of mapping out strategy from that and what they need to do with the products moving forward off the back of that one really big client. Obviously, not even agreed with it because what works with that client might not work with client X, Y, or Z kind of down the road. But it was really interesting that because it was a startup business that sometimes startups can maybe get their strategy can be impacted by a really big client spending a lot of money with you. Um, and then people obviously using that as kind of like a bit like the cash cow to help you to get to the next level, which is great. But sometimes people kind of lose sight of the strategy, which is the reason why I asked the question, which I've just asked then, as to kind of obviously how, how you kind of what you do with that information from do, do you change the strategy? Do you keep the strategy the same, et cetera? Because I think that my experience with speaking with people, it, it differs business to business. Um, depending on how big the client they bring on is and how much their spend is with the business. Because obviously money is important to any startup for, for cash flow to make sure you keep going. Um, so that's, yeah, so thanks for that, James. Quite really insightful um, what you kind of kind of what you've answered there. So, yeah, uh, just, just to add to that, I could just, yeah, remember why we went to agriculture. And that's because that's the new frontier. Um, that was the strategy that we made, whereas our, our competitors were still sticking with oil. Um, it is it is a risk, uh, but it was a risk worth taking because oil at that time dropped uh, from one hundred dollars a barrel to forty dollars a barrel, um, and that, <laughs> yeah, there, there was that time. And so, <laughs> moving to the ags business was the the strategy. Um, 
there, of course, that led to, I mean, because of the sake of speed, we, we went through poor UX, right? Um, but at the same time, I think the strategy is also to include UX in there so that we could we could hide, you know, the drop down. Let's say you go into like ag mode and you could hide all the oil and et cetera. And so it could still be a single product. Um, yeah, money does talk. And it's it's if if you don't have that revenue stream, your your company is not going to last and there's nothing to build. So you got to think about that as well. So I, I, I agree. It's that's that's why we're here. It's a very tough decision to make. Yeah, it it definitely is. Um, okay, you you mentioned just in in that kind of um, area then about sort of spreadsheets and and putting a date against that. Yeah. What 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 tools do you use when you actually keep when you're keeping track of the strategy? Uh, kind of like how do you actually yeah how do you make sure you are on track to implement a successful product strategy? So um, there there are various tools. Um, the 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 ones we tend to use in startups are the free ones and that's usually <laughs> Trello um, and Excel and as you move into like bigger companies that have bigger budgets you end up with more sophisticated products like Aha for example and that 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 is quite sophisticated and that it helps manage like multiple business departments etc and that's what's needed so. Um, Managing Trello for everybody could be pretty crazy, but um, <laughs> doable. It's doable. Um, the thing is, Trello is just the product strategy for your team, and then each board is a different product, and they could have each have a pro- different product strategy, right? Um, the idea of having a spreadsheet, having the spreadsheet, is to augment to help the business people understand. Not everyone understands Trello, right? Um, yeah. And so. Having the spreadsheet is something that they're familiar with and it's keep it simplified, keep it high level. And so um, the great thing also thing about uh, these days that Google Sheets allow is that it could be shared on the cloud as well. So it's like a buffet. If they want to check on, um, let's say, when is this feature delivered, they could just log in and then just check. They don't have to ask you. No longer you have you have to send them an email or et cetera. Um, and also Trello. I, w- I would keep two layers. There's like a high level roadmap and there's also a very detailed roadmap. Uh, some people use the detail one at the JIRA level, uh, but as JIRA also costs money. So we decide to just stick with just Trello. And um, so, yeah, it, it's it's so that everyone has transparency. And if, it wa- if someone wants to drill down from the spreadsheet to Trello, they can. Um, all you gotta do is attach the hyperlinks to the spreadsheet, and that's it. Um, yeah, it's it's just the idea. The idea is you don't want people, const- your stakeholders, to constantly bother you. So make it a buffet for them to collect the information. Fantastic. I, I like the uh, the buffet analogy. It's, it's brilliant. And um, it's interesting that Excel and spreadsheets are still used. I mean, it's something that I've used historically, and I know a lot of businesses just just hate them. I'm not sure if they hate them simply because it's just a spreadsheet and it's not a fancy tool. But if if money was no object, would you, do you reckon you'd still use spreadsheets, or would you simply just go into something more sophisticated? Um, I guess just so that people can learn. Because I think a lot of people try and overcomplicate things sometimes when a spreadsheet will actually do um, uh, for, for people to understand and see. So let's just assume the context of a Gantt chart, right? Um, yeah. The 
the reason why spreadsheet is so popular is because they're so flexible as well. But what also makes it very difficult uh, is that it's highly customizable and not everyone can understand what you just built in the spreadsheet as yeah. well. So use it only when you could keep things simple and everyone can understand. And, and the thing is, we got to react fast. Because um, the other thing is, if you want to bring in a new tool, you have to evaluate it and everyone has to agree with it. And that usually takes like three weeks. And three weeks, you could probably already build something. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, do, do the thing is, use what your team is comfortable with, not yourself. I always adapt to, I try to adapt to what the team is using now. And um, only just in your first few weeks of your job, just figure out how they're doing it and then offer, be an expert of what they're doing and then offer suggestions to provide other tools. Because if you just immediately suggest another tool, they're like, um, this is gonna cost money and let me just evaluate it and then it has to require time. Um, yeah, after the evaluation, um, you would figure out, I mean, as in, as you're listening to your team, you would figure out what their needs are and whether the your spreadsheet or Trello can suffi would suffice for that. I can tell you I've survived, I think, three startups with just Trello and spreadsheets, so it's been fine. And this this recommendation actually came from a senior product manager at Deliveroo, so he's just using the same thing. Wow. A, a unicorn. And they've, I mean, Deliveroo are huge now, aren't they? So, I mean, if they're, if they're... Not a huge budget, but that they still use spreadsheets and Trello. <laughs> I think it's brilliant because I think that you're essentially you're only as good as the the tools you have to the disposal with how you use them you could have the best tool in the world the most expensive tool in the world but if you don't know how to use it then it's a pointless having it and the, the reason why i kind of I picked up on that is um a company that i used to work for we we brought in a big fancy crm and we invested a lot of money and you know what it was it was brilliant it was everything was in one place and i still went back to spreadsheets and pen and paper because i like spreadsheets and i like pen and paper and it's what it's how I figured out that I was more productive and I could keep track of things better and I keep on top of things better. Yeah. And like my planning for the next day, pen and paper, rather than having it on a laptop. Um, for it just, sure. Yeah, it, it just worked so much better for me personally. And I think that we tried to move everything onto a CRM. It didn't quite work for, I think it was like a split 50% loved it, 50% were just a bit, maybe a bit more like me, a bit more all over the place. And I'm, I mean, I'm 29, so it's not like I'm too old to learn uh, new tech. It was just simply spreadsheet and pen and paper was better. There's, there's a, you brought an interesting point. Um, there's the adoption time as well. So after three weeks of evaluating, you have to share it with the rest of the team, right? And that's going to take, sometime and you might as well just get the next paycheck in and in, in terms of like the get get the product out and get get the sales to close the deal uh, pen and paper is just fine when i was working in mendeley we were just putting index cards in blue tack on on the door on the wall and we were moving cards literally physical cards um i loved it because it's tactile and everyone gets to see it the thing is it's these days, having an on-site team is, very, is, is a luxury because they're, they're quite expensive. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's why we go to the digital form. It's because we have to work with onshore or offshore devs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the adoption period you, you mentioned then was, was really interesting because I think that sometimes you can lose people. By, yeah. and, and I think that we, we yeah. lost some people with that. Yeah, people <laughs> find over things. 
Um, yeah, my CTO hates Jira. Like he would, he would <laughs> if he installed that. So <laughs> yeah. you're, you're right. You're right. It's that's a risk that you have to consider when adopting new tools. Yeah, I, I think it's obviously it's going to another area of obviously business change, um, which is obviously a, a huge, huge area in in itself. Um, Okay, interesting. What one other thing was just kind of linking into Jira and another company that I worked with when they actually I was supplying them project managers to implement Jira across the business. Do do you find that in the I guess the products and tech world you're in that often with these tools that you actually come across that they wait for big companies to implement them, see how they're used, and then a lot of companies kind of follow in their in their track whether they work for the, for that business or not, just because let's say. Trusty have implemented Jira and Deliveroo haven't, that Deliveroo might implement Jira because it's competition, it's there using it, so we want to make sure it's accessible for us to hire talent. Do, do you find that that still happens? I know historically it happens across the tech world, the wait for a company to implement the latest piece of tech, whether it works for your business or not, other companies will follow suit because, of, because their competitors have done it. Is that something that you still find happens? Um, the, the great example is uh, Office 365 and G Suite. Um, <laughs> Right. So I, I would arrive in a company and it's office and I'd be like, oh, man, I got to I got to deal with this. Um, I'm not going to quit over it, but it's it's something that you just got to deal with. Um, but and you never know. These days, people might just yeah decline a job. But that's almost the same level as like you're declining a job because there's no ping pong table available. Um, <laughs> um in in the end, I don't think people are that fickle. It's it's more like is they would seek what is the challenge when it comes to finding their next career step is what is the challenge that's being on offered? Um, how how big is the market, et cetera? It's not what the company uses. Um, to answer your question, some companies find it actually cheaper to continue to use Office 365 and incorporate their products because it's just cheaper um, and yeah. and revenue is you know the thing or profit is the thing so yeah that's why um they continue to use it uh yeah so it, it's it's really dependent on the higher ups people what they choose and when they choose it uh stick with it don't change that's what i, I would suggest don't change too quickly from one system to the other they'll drive people nuts because there's there's a learning curve for each system and once they learn it they'll they'll be experts at it yeah, no, I, I, it's really kind of clever what you said and different than what you said, because obviously you've worked predominantly with startups. I, I've i worked with both um, and kind of every different level across my career from a recruiting aspect. And I think the first company I ever worked with in recruitment um, was in an, is it, is it an airport and they were implementing uh, SAP. And they bought every single piece of SAP that they possibly could, and then they couldn't actually fit it together. But they did it because another airport had done the same thing. Hence why, hence why I kind of men- I mentioned that it seems to be like a common trend that across the the tech world that companies just kind of do follow suit sometimes, whether it's right or not for the business, and they actually haven't thought through I, a few I, months in advance and actually think actually what's the impact here on on the team? Is this actually going to be right for us as a business? I, I honestly think that's a, you have a superstar salesman in in that SAP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can sell several million dollars worth of product to one airport and say that this airport's using it, so why don't you? And then the other airport, 
because they traditionally don't have product managers. They can't evaluate things. And so, OK, we'll just take it. And yeah, that, that's what I see happening. You got a really good salesman there, SAP. Hats off to you. I, th- I think they have an interest and they brought in a product team after this. I guess to stop that from happening again in the future, because that's what they brought in about about a year after that, that they brought in a whole new product division. Yeah, and um, this is what uh, company, and this is this is the the need uh, for product manager and the rise for corporates uh, bringing in into product. So uh, the actually the the last two, the current company I'm in now, they are growing their product team because previously everything is dictated by sales and it's now driving not really driving fast enough momentum we're being disrupted for example and um and a lot of corporates are are looking at the startups that they acquire and see how they do things and that's because they are they're being disrupted and uh actually when i was sent me a sample it's actually owned by mnc sachi and they built this little startup to disrupt themselves to ensure that uh, they capture all that and they purposely hired a product director or just product uh, to ensure that that is managed properly. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, fantastic. Um, James, is there anything else you want to add about product strategy which you might have missed off during, during this process? Um, I, would, I would say to summarize, I think when, if you're just a, if you're trying to, you're struggling to find what your product strategy is, um, yeah, go back to your users. Think about, uh, imagine your users being the CEO, not the CEO himself. Actually, the CEO should be the last in line because he's not, not, in, not in touch with you as much as you are. So put that in, that's how TransferWise do it. That's their hierarchy, the users at the top. Um, also check out Teresa Torres. Uh, she came up with a very nice system that is that could, I think could last for ages, uh, which is, grouping problems together to create a product strategy. So check her out as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely check her out after this as well, because I've not come across um, Teresa Torres, but I'll definitely check her out and give her a follow. Um, great. OK, um, outside the product strategy, then just a couple of final quick fire questions. Um, you gave some really clever insights to how you got to where you are in your career. What's your best interviewing tip for a product manager going to an interview? Doesn't matter whether it's a big company, small company. What would your your top tip be to, to for somebody? What's it, What's important for me is that the job that you're entering is what you are expecting. Like you don't want any surprises. And also, and also, you want to make sure that this job is going to make a big deal out of your. Um, career ladder. So prior to going to that interview, uh, first tip is evaluate the company like you're an investor, right? Figure out its growth, its its com- competitors and things like that, and see the opportunity is there or not, because that opportunity will dictate your challenge. Um, and then the only way to find out whether you have the tools, the resources, is ask about their structure. Um, how many devs do they have? And ask, ask your manager uh, who's interviewing you, who do they admire because, or who do they hate most um, on the flip side? Because that reflects actually what they are like. And so that you have an idea of who you're going to be working with. So that, then that brings back to meeting your expectations, ensuring that you have the right tools to, yeah, overcome this opportunity and then just um, 
yeah, be a star product manager with those elements together. Great tip and some really kind of useful things there for, especially for kind of sort of junior to mid-level product managers to kind of what they need to get from that from their next company. Because I think that there's a lot of movement in the product world. Um, every kind of 18 months to two years at the minute, people seem to be moving jobs. So it's important to make sure you get that, get the right opportunity. I think yeah. is, is 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 the big is the key pit there. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, you're somebody who's been a hiring manager, are a hiring manager now, head of product. Um, what's your top tip for hiring managers? Listen to this as to how to acquire talent, the right talent, um, and in, I guess in a in a timely manner. In a timely manner, ooh, that's that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> because it, nowadays it takes about six to eight months to hire somebody. Um, and mainly because... Sorry to interject, James. When you say six to eight months, is that from actually getting signed off for the role or identifying that you need the role? Is that simply when you actually go out to market? That's how long it takes. That's right. When you when you say we need somebody and then you get... Once you need somebody, you have to get the budget for it and then you start interviewing and then to find the right fit, it takes six to eight months. Um, okay. But when, you actually, when you're actually in the market though, let's say when you do go to market, um, either internal or from a recruiting aspect... Does does that does that take months and months as well, or is it just just so I got the full understanding then, so so the listeners have as well? It could it could range. It could be it could range from one month um, to five months, uh, depending on how niche you want the uh, product manager to be. Yeah. <laughs> People like want specifically this person came from a hotel group, let's say a host maker. They were looking someone who who had experience. And so we managed to hire someone from the Emirates group, which is amazing. And like at Capernaum here, we hired like a former librarian. So these are like <laughs> that they want. Um, but seriously, you you really you really don't. But it is advantage. I mean, if you're willing to wait for it, fine. Uh, you really don't have to do that as long as you understand that that person has uh, good emotional uh, intelligence EQ. Um, able to have you know, the various gaps. I mean, do an audit of what your product managers can or cannot do and find out what gaps you have and what your team has and just hire for that. Um, let's say you you're not you don't have that many user research available or product managers are not good at re- user research. So hire someone who can do that. Um, and yeah. that and there's plenty of people available who could do that. So um, yeah, I think I think a good tip would be audit your team and see what your gaps are. Perfect. Okay. Um, fantastic. Um, the other question was, what do you look for in a product manager? But you kind of mentioned emotional intelligence there, which is, I mean, it's massive. Um, I guess, would, would that be the kind of the key thing, apart from obviously being a, a solid product manager with, I guess, I guess experience from anywhere? Yeah. I mean, emotional intelligence for me is massive and being self-aware and empathy and driven working cars like these are all traits i looked for when i was hiring recruiters and when i hire recruiters um which is different than what a lot of companies ask from. I try to, when they try and hire sales people they just want people to come in and just kind of be able to blog it whereas i do things a bit different where it's actually oh no i want people with strong eq because the reality is you get that right you get the a lot of the culture right in the business as well and the rest of the and the rest of that so would would the emotional times be the main factor you look for in a product manager as well I'm actually studying this just as a personal side thing, as research. Um, sure, emotional intelligence is one thing. And what that means is that person's able to emulate the emotions of the user, completely sympathize or empathize 
the user and that way they could understand the problem because not everyone who works in the company actually uses the product so um, they might not understand it also i'm studying the different types of personality types um and i'm not talking necessarily myers-briggs but there's there's i forgot the name of it. it's just a system made by carl jung the 16 personality types that there are people who are good external sensors uh, people who gather information from outside like they talk to people to to build the judgment and there's also people who internalize like are more intuitive they come up with judgment based on what they know mm. um so i think the best senior product managers are the external sensors um they've very good at optimizing what people want but the ceos or like the head of products they're more it has to be more intuitive because um, they have to come up with their own ideas a great example, Tim Cook versus Steve Jobs, right? <laughs> you can see Tim Cook, he's a, he's a COO. He's very good at optimizing. He's an external sensor. And, and he's able to increase the uh, revenue because of optimization. But you haven't seen much change in their telephones. I mean, their smartphones. It's just yeah. a camera. It's not something like brand new, like a touchscreen when Steve Jobs came, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so my point is, if you want something completely brand new, someone who's like leadership level, hire someone who's more intuitive. And if you if you find that there's a senior product manager who is an external sensor, it will take time for them to learn. Um, but yeah, that's that's one thing. But if you could find someone who's a natural intuitive person, yeah, hire that person instead. Great stuff. Great, great tip as well, James. Thank you for, for that. And I think that comes to the end of our, our, our podcast. So thank you so much for your time, James. I, I appreciate you've been a great guest. Uh, it's been great to, to record this podcast with you. Thank you. That was a very interesting set of questions as, as well. Uh, appreciate your time as well. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, James. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the podcast. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe like comment share with your friends and if you are a product leader who would like to be on the podcast email ash at ardortalent.co.uk that's ash at ardor a-r-d-o-r talent.co.uk